people either learn to work with each other and respect their animal nature or they perish. Their relationships will perish. We either play mindfully, be aware of the other person's needs and wants at the same time as we're aware of ours, or we go to war. This is just nature. Nature is indifferent. This has been going on since the beginning of civilization. Two warring factions, they decide, let's not do that anymore. Let's find some commonalities. Let's come up with social contracts that ensure everyone to be safe and protected and to be able to thrive and prosper. Let's do that. And we'll govern in a certain way and we'll have to put rules in place to keep people from doing bad things. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, welcome back, Stan Tatkin. Hey. <laughs> we are so excited to have you back. You are actually, I don't know if you remember this, but you were one of the very, I may have been the very first guests that we had on our show partly because of how much respect we have for you around translating this incredible rich science into practical terms. So I'm super excited to sit down with you again. And I'm honored. Thank you. There's a whole lot of people right now during this plague and stay-at-home orders that are in really happy relationships and they're with their families and things are going really well. But even then, when you're stuck with people as human animals, <laughs> right, the stress happens. But particularly folks that, you know, find themselves in painful relationships, things are being exposed now about, you know, what is wrong in the relationship. So I was hoping that we could talk, you could share your thoughts about when you're in a couple and particularly in a couple in strain, a couple that is having some trouble. Can you give us some guidance about, you know, what are the most important things that you think about? It's a big outline question, but. Sure. Well, one of the things that this COVID-19 is teaching us is that we have an existential threat around us, right? You have an existential threat. It was 9-11 at one point, then it was nuclear war, and then it was war, and then perhaps a terrorist attack here. It's a pandemic, right? And a pandemic has been anticipated for decades, right? This kind of pandemic. So, yeah, we're all taken by surprise. It's really awful. It's scary, like all existential threats. And yet... It's very difficult to get people to see that this is always the case, that this one is here now and reminds us of our mortality and restricts and changes our lives to where we have to adapt. And that causes, you know, what uh, Jean Piaget calls disequilibrium. So we're disequilibrated and life is a daily adaptation in some measure, that seems at moments surreal and bizarre. You know, walking outside and seeing more neighbors than you're accustomed to, but everyone has masks on and walks across the street and don't touch my dog because it might get on me. And so there's all these, these uh, nice things and strange things that still, you know, the world is off its axis a bit. And this kind of reinforces something I've been trying to get across to couples. And that is, why be a couple? What's the point of your relationship? Why do it? And you can't use love as a reason. You can't use your children as the reason. Why, why are you a couple? Who or what do you serve? And what greater purpose is there that a meaning, shared meaning that you give to this union other than just two people sort of banging along every day. I've noticed that very few of us ever think about our shared purposes or our shared mythologies. We have an existential threat. And whenever we have an existential threat, things happen. People will break up right away. They decide they've been on the fence and they're going to divorce. They decide they're going to get married they're going to move in with someone, commit to someone. Maybe they're going to have babies. 
So whatever the crisis is, we tend to see these decisions that seem rather rash, but people are existentially threatened, the lives are threatened, there's an unknown, people are scared, and life is now short. Even though there's always been an existential threat, and we tend to go to sleep with this, at least in our neck of the woods, our culture. And this then leads to taking things for granted and doing things that the human mind tends to do, like going into automation. We're mostly automatic about 98% of the day, using cheap memory as a way to move around through the day and get things done. This is energy conserving. It's a necessary sort of limiting of the brain. So when you say cheap energy, can you say what you mean by that? But cheap energy meaning we're using subcortical regions to employ something called procedural memory, body memory, and a kind of memory that's even faster than that called recognition. Recognition is lightning fast, and our day is really being run by these low cost in terms of oxygen and glucose to run areas. Kind of autopilot. Autopilot, right, Mm -hmm. via memory, and saving our resources for things that we have to do that are energy expending. And one of those things we have to do that's energy expending is deal with novelty. And that starts with anything new, including our partners. So I meet you, Sue, you're novel, and I pay a lot of attention to you. I'm producing uh, quite a bit of oxytocin, vasopressin, but also dopamine and testosterone and noradrenaline for a lot of attention. All that's really groovy and great, keeps me present, but soon I'm going to automate you, you're going to automate me, and that is going to settle down, make life easier, except that we think we know each other, and now we're operating by memory only. Now, this creates a series of problems, one of which has to do with the nature of adult attachment pair bonding, and that is we pick each other by recognition and familiarity, therefore, the person we pick is going to likely play a proxy for everyone and every experience I've ever had, good or bad, in my life. And you're going to be that person for me. That's good news and bad news. In fact, everything I'm saying right now has a feature to it and a bug to it, right? Feature Mm -hmm. set, a bug set. Mm -hmm. And so we take each other for granted. We operate by memory. We're making tremendous errors of communication and perception and appraisal at any given time. That's a problem. And then let's add to this the homo sapien, which is by nature aggressive and warlike, fickle, moody, always aware of what's missing, what I don't have, comparing and contrasting this to that, and sometimes can be wanting, opportunistic, looking for shiny objects, right? What could possibly go wrong, right, in relationships? Well, everything when involving the human primate. So here we are, our nature state, which is unpleasant and unreliable, in a world that is actually quite threatening. And we're flighty animals here, flighty and fickle and moody. So how do we pair bond At any time, not just a time when we have to cloister together, huddle together to keep each other safe, but how do we do that all the time? And whether we're talking about attachment or personality disorders or brain injury or psychiatric problems, all people have to do this in order to survive. We're pack animals, right? Interactional beasts. We're social creatures. We don't do well by ourselves with some outliers, It may be so, but most of us don't, right? We're clingy, dependent animals. And we are built to interdepend on another person, at least, to serve a vision, a purpose, a shared purpose. Maybe it's to survive. Maybe it's to survive and thrive. And so we guarantee each other certain things based on being completely different people, different brains, never being on the same page at once, but approximating each other's mind. That's good. And so we're differentiated, shared power in a conditional pay-to-play relationship where 
we are offering each other something, something that the world can't offer. We're pledging to that offer and to staying to the agreements that we make. We form our culture, our sigil, you know, what our, what our you know, flag will say. This is our fiefdom. We may have a song. We may have a flag. We may have a motto. We may have a mission statement. We may have anything, but we have a shared vision and a shared purpose for being together. It's not about love. This is why we do this, and this is why we don't do something else. So I've established a hierarchy here. Whether we're dealing with personalities of any kind, all people have to come together and have some meaning that they share as to why they're going through this, because people are burdens. People are difficult. Right. And I like that you said earlier that a lot of times we're not conscious of what this value is and what this meaning is. And that's part of what you're saying is you'd like to draw attention to that. Very much. Love is simply not enough. Love, like other feelings, is too ephemeral. It comes and goes. It, it is fleeting. All thoughts and feelings are fleeting. Only purpose, a stated purpose with a vision and a goal, a direction, is what remains consistent over time. That can shift too, but not nearly like urges and impulses. And So we have to have that. You're kind of talking about organizing principles. Organizing principles. Right. So that then when the, you know, when you're in this labile <laughs> affective states that you have your bowling lanes set up. We have to. Otherwise, we're going to step on the other person's toes. We're going to cross over into their lane. We're going to do something that's unfair or unjust or insensitive. And I imagine most people don't know what their bowling lanes are, you know, as far as the, their organizing principle as a couple or as a family. No, they don't. It's ad hoc. They make it up as they go, and they use it from the point of view of the insecure model. The insecure model is, it's my way, it's good for me, and if it's not good for you, I'm sorry, but that's the way it goes. So insecure models are pro-self, not pro-relationship by definition. Always pro-self. That's an adaptation to environment. Ivan Bozer-Menyanaj wrote about this at great length when writing about invisible loyalties and families and how injustices are simply recorded at like a ledger and are acted out to society, all the injustices from the family. In secure and insecure attachment, the same thing. We take our injustices, unfairness, and sensitivities, and then we carry that forward into our future relationships and act, it can act just as insensitive and unfair. So we have an insecure model that we take care of ourselves only, we silo ourselves, you stay to your side, I stay to my side, or I really want more connection than you want, and both people become a threat to each other. One is, is too close and threatens the other's autonomy. One is too distant and threatens the other's sense of safety and security and abandonment issues. So what do you do about all of this? What I'm arguing today is that every couple has a duty. It's not a luxury. It's necessity to come together as two adults, as two policymakers, design their own ethic their own ethos, their own kingdom or queendom. This is how we are. This is how we roll interpersonally, socially, emotionally, and this is what we don't do. Jewish ethical wills, by the way, historically used to be part of what parents would hand down to their children. Mm. This is how we comport ourselves socially, emotionally in the world. This is what we expect you to do. This is part of our family ethos. Can you give some examples of this? We protect each other in public and private. Our relationship always comes first. We do support each other to perform well, to be as good as one can be, but never at the cost of the relationship. If there is a breach in our relationship, if I do you harm or you feel I have, then I cannot go very long without going to you to try to fix that because the relationship comes first. 
I cannot tolerate, none of us in the family can tolerate a breach in a relationship. We feel it as not being able to breathe right. It is, in fact, an existential threat for the human primate to not know whether or not this relationship will exist tomorrow. It's a major error that humans will make when using that as a bargaining chip to threaten the relationship. It is not to be toyed with. Just like uh, tomorrow, you, I may kill you, will cause as, you know, many symptoms as tomorrow, I may not be here. It wreaks havoc with us. And there are a lot of ways to take care of this so it doesn't happen. But my point is, without you and I talking about why we're doing this, who and what do we serve, what is something that's greater than you or I, because we're going to be animals and we're moving through time and life is unpredictable. But one thing that is predictable is that we're not reliable. So <laughs> what can we build in? What do we believe in more than ourselves that we can serve that holds us to task and that points us in the same direction? Then, first of all, we may, you and I may find out we disagree wholeheartedly on certain big ticket items. Yeah, it's like, it's like what's the North Star? We're paddling towards it, but we have to agree on whatever we're, we're paddling towards. Yeah, and I'm saying, no, I'm going West. So yeah. <laughs> uh -uh. <laughs> right. I always wanted to go West. Well, now the average couple will say, okay, let's just stay here for a while. Let's build a house and we'll decide later which will go North or West. Okay. And to translate that, you know, into very real married monogamous couple that one person begins to hear about all of these options that they have missed out on. And they come to a point where their need is to explore other sexual relationships. So just to ground it in something that is. Uh... <laughs> so let's take that one. That one never comes up. One person wants monogamous, full monogamy. The other person, not so much. So let's make it more realistic. The other person, you know what, I'll do it. I'll do it for a while, but I'm, no promises. So I like the idea of someday experimenting with you, without you maybe, maybe polyamory. I don't know. I just like the idea. The idea of never being able to do that doesn't suit me. So for now, yeah, I, I'm on board with you. Okay. Deal or no deal. And that's what we're getting to. Deal or no deal. So here's the problem. The couples that I see have made bargains that they never should have made with each other simply because breaking up is very hard to do and we are attachment animals. Once we attach to somebody, a puppy or kitten or a kid or a human adult, you know, it's kind of hard to get rid of them. And so it's not uncommon for you to say, I always wanted children. And I say, I never want children. And we see the end of our relationship ahead of us. And one of us says, let's buy a house and get married. Okay. And we kick the can down the road for another day. Right. I'll, I'll change your mind eventually. Yes, yeah, right. And this may be one reason why couples won't futurize. They won't, in the beginning, start to envision this is who I am. This is who you are. Let's build something that accommodates who we are. That's special for us. What do we want? And I think people are afraid because they're afraid they're going to get to a deal breaker and that will be the end of things. So they opt for ignoring it. <laughs> yeah, kind of dissociating it or yes. compartmentalizing it. Yep. And it always causes a problem. Let's say this. This is what we would call a shared principle of governance. We know why we're going to be together. We know what we're about. We have our flag, our motto. We're pointing in the same direction. We know as a couple where we want to be in five years. That's groovy. But here we get to, now what are there, our guardrails? What are our rules, our principles, our declaration of interdependence? I believe in full transparency. I, th I believe the left hand should know what the right hand is doing at all times. And I think it's a much better deal and less energy expending for us to be ourselves and to say what's true rather than worry about whether we'll get in trouble or not. What say you? And you say, well, I see your point, and that sounds good. I don't think it's a great idea to have full transparency. I think we should be able to have secrets of our own, little private areas that are our own. You know, I'm very sensitive to enmeshment ideas, and okay. I just don't think it's a good idea, right? Okay, so... What we have here, 
is an honest disagreement. Neither are right, neither are wrong. In secure functioning, we don't care what their agreements are so long as they can defend their agreements as serving a personal good and a mutual good. If they can do that, God bless them. But here we have a difference. One person says, absolutely, that's important. The other person says, not absolutely. And this is a deal breaker until it isn't. And this is what couples must do if they want a mature, long-running relationship. The only relationships that will last a lifetime are ones that where partners vow, absolutely, to operate according to principles of fairness and justice, sensitivity, that they commit to being fully collaborative and cooperative, and that they are there to move together by bargaining, negotiating, by creating win-win outcomes whereby they move together after creating those agreements. There's nothing to look back on. There's no litigating the past. There's no memory of unfairness. That is a socially, emotionally complex system that's using attraction, not fear, threat, or guilt to elicit or to influence the other and persuade the other to do what I want. Okay, so we have a complex system that a lot of people are not up to doing because they're oriented towards, I'll be ripped off if I do that. I don't go all in. I don't throw in because my history is always, I've gotten ripped off. It's a bad deal for me. Put two secures together. They may like this menu, this idea of collaboration, cooperation, but they will not eat the food because they believe, based on their real experience, that it's a raw deal. I'll either have my stuff, my independence taken, or I will be forever worried about being left. I will forever feel like I'm being rejected and abandoned. So, so much of my task, Sue, has been to try to, as educator, as therapist, make very clear how important this attitude of what these relationships are and what they can never be, how to get that across, not just the tools, because people want the tools. How do we get in and out of this fight? How do I get him to see what's bothering me by the way he makes fun of me? How do I get her to see how I feel rejected every night when she doesn't want to sleep with me or have sex with me? It becomes these modules. And in my line of work, Sue, we know now that all problems with a couples and primaries, all problems exist in the interactions. They're not the content areas ever. These interactions, we can see by breaking it down frame by frame, by studying digital video and doing my, uh, macro analysis, micro analysis, we can see that these errors in their interactions repeat and repeat in everything they do. So going back to COVID and, and couples being stuck together, right? So one person feels more comfortable bringing in a babysitter because, you know, they need help. The other person says, how could you risk our children? And ad nauseum, right? There's so many. This is a really common point of conflict right now in couples and families. So see if you can riff on that. So here's how a secure conversation about that would go. Both people, by the way, trust each other. That's essential because without trust, nobody's going anywhere. So this is assuming that partners have put in the time to protect the safety and security system, and there is no memory of distrust, nothing pressing at least. Yeah, I was going to say, or, or that it's been resolved or, yeah. Yeah, there's always memory of distrust, even some, a lot of it precedes the relationship itself from childhood. Yeah. So I come to you, I, I say, sweetheart, you know, how about if we bring somebody in to help? I want to spend more time with you. You want to spend more time with me. All of this is really very stressful, and I can see how stressed you are. It worries me for you. Let's just open the idea here, the, the thought about bringing somebody in. Of course, we have to talk about whether that's safe or not. What, what do you think? And then what would you say? So let's say I'm under threat and I can hear where you're going. Yeah, well, yeah, you're, you're under threat. Let's say you're under threat by, the, by right. that statement. Did you hear any threat, by the way, in, in what I said? I, again, it's so funny. I can, it depends on the lens. 
But no, I think it was really masterful, you know, because it's not that you're going to do this. That's a collaborative discussion. Right. And even though I'm ready, if, if you took umbrage to what I said, I'm ready for that. Because I know you and I know that I know how bad communication on any given day is. And I know how state alters perception. Mm -hmm. So I understand that. But I'm talking to you for you, acknowledging you, caring for you, not just myself. And I'm wanting to work on it with you with the thought that maybe it's a bad idea. And I'm also mentioning ahead of time your fear that it might be unsafe. So I'm not yeah. going to signal anything that suggests you better square off and start taking care of your own interests. That's really fantastic. Something you said is you're approaching me with the idea that it's a bad idea or that you're not going to do it, right? That it's not just persuasion. No, it's yeah. my partner. I have a puzzle for us. We can leave it on the table, work on it, get away from it, work on it. Maybe we'll just toss it. It's a light touch. Yes, so give me whatever you'd like back. Let's say you took umbrage. Uh, right. Something did make you feel threatened in what I said. Right. Stan, you know, you're always kind of wanting to push these boundaries and, and I'm fine. I don't, I don't need anybody. You might be wanting a break. That's okay, but uh, I'm good. You're right. I do tend to push the boundaries sometimes. You know, I guess sitting here is making me stir crazy. I keep thinking of stuff. Um, um, you know how annoying I can be. Um, I'm sorry. But yeah, and you know what? Maybe, maybe you are right. Maybe it's really me that wants that. I'm going to take your word for it. You said that it's not bothering you, that you don't really need anybody. Before we just drop the topic, can I just check something that I still think about? Please do, because I can tell you that I already am relieved that you're giving something already. So now I'm wide open. Like, absolutely, say anything you like now. The other night, you seemed frustrated with the baby that it, it felt overwhelming to you, that you felt like you couldn't get any rest. And that was what I was thinking of. So you remember that, yeah? That makes, yes, I, I was really stressed that time, yeah. So even with remembering that, you're still okay with not having anybody? Uh, yes, the cost benefit of bringing somebody in, it, that stresses me out more. All right. Just wanted to make sure that we're on the same page with that. Is there anything you want me to do to help? No, but now I'm worried about you, that it does seem like that you could use a break. And No, uh, I'm good. I'm good. You know what? We're so close together. You know, we're tied together. So where you go, I go. If you're under stress, then I worry for you. So thank you for being worried for me. No, I'm I'm good. I'm really good. I'm so happy we're here. All right. So let's do something else. Let's table that. But actually, I think in doing that, there are a couple of really subtle statements that you made that were that you're signaling safety. Like even when I said that I'm good, I think it's you. You were like, oh, yeah, that might be that might be the case. I'm open to that. So that's masterful. That's not unheard of because we're friends and because we've not accrued anything that would suggest I don't have evidence that you've tried to blame me unfairly or that you have made up stories in your head without checking with me or that I have made you do things before without checking with you and without any remorse. We've not done those things. And if we have done those things, this would be even more important because that's the way back to safety and security. So yeah, I'm, all I'm thinking about, and this is where it's so hard with clients, Sue, because we're both in, in the same boat here, is how to convey the idea that what we do moment by moment, the decisions we make that are automatic, are really coming not from habit, but they're coming from an idea, a theory, a culture that says, that's what I do when this happens. If I'm under stress, I do this. I say this. I'm operating under an idea. The idea of secure functioning is a whole different idea of I'm in your care and you're in my care. I have to know you. I have to be a master at handling you in the good way kind of bringing out the best of me. Yes, I know exactly. I can predict you. I know what one or two, three things that really hurt you, the trauma areas. I know what to do, not to step into them. And if I do, I know how to fix that. I know how to, to protect you. I know how to get you to move around and do things by using attraction, persuasion, seduction, mm -hmm. bargaining, 
never fear a threat of guilt. So I'm operating under an idea that we share, and that gives me a sense of being able to improvise. And I know when I'm outside of that structure we built. Right. So can we do that? Just since we have that example on the table, a couple that have been married a long time, they're kind of okay, but they've got some of the stored up stuff. You actually really want, you want to work. You don't really aren't that interested in me, but the kids are driving you crazy and you really want this thing. And there is a, I don't know, I'm trying to be like, yeah, I'm trying to be realistic of people listening, you know, because I can imagine people going, yeah, that sounds great, but that's not what my partner would say, you know? (laughs) Right. If we understand the system we're in, the system that we're creating, that informs us what we can and cannot do. Unfortunately, because we become deep family as partners, like family, I feel like I can say whatever I want, your family. Your approach had so much power so that even like as someone's listening and they're thinking, oh, my partner wouldn't do that, to actually take these suggestions because it will change the whole dance, that you actually have a lot of power, even just the individual person. It's real power. Yes, it's very powerful. So I'm sorry, go ahead. But It's real power because you and I are bosses. You and I share power. We're the big kahunas. We're the leaders of the world. We lead everyone, including each other. Right, We govern everyone, including each other. We have to be good, otherwise everyone is going to suffer. So it's our job to commit to let's make this relationship as easy as possible. Let's ensure each other's safety and security every moment. Let's do these things that are highly expensive because we can. Yeah, it's not autopilot. Yeah, Nobody else will make that agreement. Quid pro quo, we we both stand to lose the same things. Under that idea, we're operating differently than if we have no idea. No, and I think many people don't. We ha- they haven't thought about this. They do have the idea that they grew up with. And right. the idea is too unfair and too insensitive. Right, and it might not even be, they might not know they have the idea. It's just kind of baked in. So, you know, we're talking to a therapist outside of us, Sue, and I'm telling the therapist and you, Sue, I may not even be nice enough to, to look at you, Sue, as I'm, oh. as I'm complaining about you. And, you know, last night the baby was crying and you were upset because you don't have any help. And I keep telling you, Sue, you know, I keep telling you, we can get you help. We have, we have the money and you just refuse to do it. And I think you're just trying to use that as a way to distance me and to keep me out of the bed. And furthermore, you know, I saw your mother do that with your father. I saw your mother, you know, push your father away and your mother made you the golden child and you yourself said you were a pain in the ass. And I feel like this is, we're doing your family and I'm being pushed out. And even now when you're, you're doing this, the way you're looking at me seems like you're just mocking me. This is what I deal with all the time. I, I just can't even, I, I don't know what to do. If we were to break down what you just said, there's like how many digs and potential fire points? Because I'm threatened. Yes, yes. Well, you're threatened and then unintentionally or maybe intentionally, but unintentionally because you're threatened and you've got your prickles out, you're coming across threateningly. Yes. People who are threatened will threaten. People who are helpless become very aggressive. And so it's all about fear and threat. It's all about fear and threat. So people who are helpless become aggressive. People who are helpless will be aggressive because Mm -hmm. they have no other way of engaging. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, people who are distancing are never themselves in a relationship because they can't engage. Mm -hmm. They have to engage outside of the relationship. Mm -hmm. They can't be themselves in the relationship. They have no boundaries. Mm -hmm. So that makes them secretive, avoidant, dismissive, attacking, or just running away. And so we have all these people that come to the table with their ideas about relationship, and then they act this way to protect themselves, which Mm -hmm. then is perceived as threatening to the other, and now you're off and running. So let's say that I came at you and said everything that you just said to me, and like, can you give us some structure around how to de-escalate the situation, how to move more towards security? So I just did this. I just did this. What's your true response to that attack I just gave you? I wanted to argue like there was like, it's not my mother, you know, that's not fair that you're bringing up something I've shared with you about my history and that you're, it feels like you're throwing the kitchen sink at me. And really, I think that you are the one that wants this and that's okay. But I just want you to own that it's your need, not mine. Okay. All right. I see. I, I made a mistake. 
I made a mistake. I see what I did. I'm really sorry, Sue. First of all, in front of the therapist, I was wrong. I started, I got scared and, and got angry in an old way that was unnecessary here. And I threw you under the bus in front of the therapist. I'm really sorry. I think I want more time with you to problem solve these things in advance because it feels like we're both constantly catching up to crisis after crisis instead of planning for them so that our nights are not pleasant. And I think that would have been a better way to, to approach this. I'm sorry I blamed you because I'm as much fault as anybody here. I think now I'm understanding. I'd like, if you're willing, I'd like us to start thinking now, planning together on how we can make for a more peaceful evening. Forget the, uh, the nanny. And I love you. And I so appreciate what you do. So I imagine as people are listening, you can, you probably, if you're engaged in this, you can feel your nervous system. It's his words on the, you know, the first set were arousing. And then again, these magic phrases, they're not even magic, but it's signaling safety, 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 where that I want to crawl up in your lap. I'm perfectly happy now. I'm like, if you want a nanny, go right ahead. You know, <laughs> and hopefully my face conveys it too. Yes. Yes. Because I understand. It's beautiful. Well, it feels genuine. You're not saying kind of like fine or okay. So here's what went through my head. First of all, I remember that when we get into, into things like this, we both start careening off the cliff. We're going to go off the cliff in the car, our car. One of us has to grab the wheel. And I just woke up and I realized I've got to grab the wheel. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're not going to get anything done. And we're going to go back to a familiar place, Groundhog Day. And it's so common. It's two kids, two kids fighting, you know, two young selves, more regressive. I think you've called them before primitives. Yes, the primitives. And I become aware that I'm doing what feels good, not what feels right. At this point, I know what's right. And I know what just simply feels better by blaming you and discharging on you. So I self-correct. Again, because we've already had some talks about how to do this. I self-correct. And I approach in a friendly way. I fall on my sword, which is a very animal thing to do. And I come back to talking about you and my interest in what you're interested in. We have to understand that nobody will ever be influenced under conditions that are less than safe. Nobody. Right. I totally agree. And you said something, again, I just want to highlight some of the keys here. Two things that I noticed. One is you said, I self-corrected which is true because I also could have, because that I know you and I know, you know, that you're like, I could have also helped you versus you having to self-correct. And that's the beauty of couples because only one needs to remember that's and that right. changes the trajectory. That's only right. one. That's and right. so if I were the therapist, Sue, I would take the scene and I would take the stand character and I would take the Sue character and I would work with one of you at a time and I'd make the stand character worse and worse and worse for you and get you activated, and then say, okay, Sue, what are you going to do right now to de-escalate this? What are you going to do right now? So that you practice how to deal with the Stan animal, the animal you picked, because it always That's comes fantastic. down to competence. I don't like you because I'm incompetent with you. I don't know how you work. So we'll do that, and then we'll go in the other direction and make the Sue character as difficult for the Stan character, make her worse and worse, Stan has to come up with at least three different ways of changing the trajectory. It's state-dependent learning. It's all state-dependent because what we're dealing with is memory-driven state and state-driven memory. Your audience should remember this formula. State drives memory. Memory drives state constantly. And state alters perception like a funhouse mirror. If my state changes, what I see, smell, taste, touch, here is radically altered. That's what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Communication that on any given day is terrible. We're mostly misunderstanding each other. Our memory is coming into play and driving a state of mind. And that's altering how I see your face, listen to your words. That's what we're dealing with universally with the human animal. Mm -hmm. So only two people being accountable for changing a trajectory 
can do this. One person can't. Well, I also I really like and want to highlight the point of it's about us learning when we're dysregulated and we're offended and we're our cortisol's up. It's about us learning both to catch the wheel, as you said, like having a memory, body memory of our competence to be able to r- regulate them as well, which is really different than just, you know, you need to behave or else. <laughs> so in this game, Sue, my job is to regulate you. Your job is to regulate me. That's not codependency, that's interdependency. It's called co-regulation. Mm-hmm. So as I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to you about something that bothers me. I'm watching you moment by moment to see if something disturbs you. Because if it does, I have to stop there and repair it. Otherwise, I lose my audience. Otherwise, if you are the least bit unsafe and feel the, the least bit distressed, your sensorium has changed. The way your brain is working has changed. It's in my best interest to keep you on board with me. So I might, I might say, am I doing that thing again, Sue? Am I going on too long? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to yield the floor to you. Mm-hmm. So I know you. I know my impact on you. As I move and talk, I am sh- ensuring that you are okay. Because if you're not okay, I walk away with nothing. Well, that was the, the other one that I was going to point out that you did. You said this earlier of part of how you caught the wheel and you shifted was that you went back to me and you began to attend to me, which I felt. And then again, like you're saying, then shift changes and perception changes and all of a sudden you're a good guy and I'm open again. So that was a really important. So like, I guess in the heat of it, one to do would be to shift. If you don't know what to do to shift into the memory of what Stan is talking about, which is to take care of the other person. I actually want to talk to you about this problem that we have, I think, as therapists. I think therapists have to do the same thing that I'm saying couples have to do. We have to have a big idea under which we operate. Mine is secure functioning. Shared power, fair, just, sensitive, full collaboration, full cooperation, pay to play, fully conditional, based on the agreements that we make and the terms that we bring to the table, that that has to be there. That has to be there or it's mayhem. And pay to play means what? Pay to play means that only in childhood is there such a thing as unconditional love. In adulthood, it's all conditional. Yeah, there's no tenure. There's no tenure. It's conditional. That's not a bad thing. Actually, the best thing about it is that We're more accountable to each other because it is conditional and pay to play means that if we really think about all that we could do together, we should be doing things for each other on a day-to-day basis that nobody would ever want to do unless they got paid a lot of money. It's an expensive unit. If I break it, I fix it. If I do something to betray our trust, I have to pay a lot, and maybe that even won't get me in. I have to pay a lot to get back right. in. No, I, I like the currency. And uh, an association I just had, going back to the therapists, is many of us have had to move online. Well, some people do work online anyway, but those of us who typically work live. So as a group therapist, I've also moved my groups online. And it has been really, really difficult And because the frame has completely changed. And there is this, you can make an argument, this isn't what I signed up for. And so I've gotten a little bit like thrown around like, wait a minute, you know, like, should I just kind of, should we not do, you know what I mean? My, I've really reeled. But the way that I applied what you're saying is like, hang on a minute, guiding principles we're in this, this is the groups are going to just go on and all the reactions that people are having are just the group reaction. And we're going to, and for my role anyway, it's a principle of like, I'm going to show up, I'm going to be honest. It's not the same as it was. I'm transparent about, I'm in it with you. (laughs) This is crazy. But that's how I applied it was like the really thinking about, okay, that's the North Star. When we're thrown off, when there's a trauma like this, we're thrown off. 
And that's the purpose of it, is to guide us in the dark when we don't know. Is that kind of where you were going with that? Yes. I also think necessity is the mother of invention. I'm with you. Uh, There have been some days I sat here and I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. These people need a therapist. I'm terrified here. This is, I'm back to knowing nothing again. I'm having to work in this uh, sharp learning curve, but I'm still enjoying it, which tells me something. So that I'm learning, right? And it's stressful. But it does make it more urgent that I stay, that I keep my focus, that I know where I'm pointing. I know where I expect them to go. I have high expectations and I provide a lot of support. But it feels more urgent these days to hold them in place and to get them to think this way and to work this way. Otherwise, they won't make it. They won't make it. We don't have the time to do a lot of analysis because one of them is going to do something stupid and they're not going to make it. So this is really about the therapist expecting in every way with clear, coherent vision of where they must go in order to survive and thrive. There's only one way, not because I say so, but years of study of the human being and how civilization works and how attachment works, neurobiology, all of that leads to one inescapable thing. And that is people either learn to work with each other and respect their animal nature or they perish. Their relationships will perish. We either play mindfully be aware of the other person's needs and wants at the same time as we're aware of ours, or we go to war. This is just nature. Nature is indifferent. This has been going on since the beginning of civilization. Two warring factors, they decide, let's not do that anymore. Let's find some commonalities. Let's come up with social contracts that ensure everyone to be safe and protected, and to be able to thrive and prosper. Let's do that. And we'll govern in a certain way, and we'll have to put rules in place to keep people from doing bad things. We're all looking for a leader (laughs) about how to get through this. And so- And that's the couple. Right, that's the couple. That's right. That's right. That's the couple. That's the group. It's the, but it's also these principles. They can guide us when we don't know. So I really, really like this. Is this in one of your books or is this just your current thinking? Or It's interesting because when I first started creating PACT, the approach, which is basically an integrative, nonlinear, integrative, polytheoretical approach, I had social justice there, right? Social justice, because I've always been a fan of John Rawls and, and Lawrence Kohlberg and Ivan Bozerman Yunaj and Carol Gilligan. You know, I've always thought that this is a missing piece fairness and justice. And now it's gone from sort of the, the bastard child of pact to the most important. So the next book I write is basically, it won't be the title because the title is now taken, Love is Not Enough. We have to focus on purpose. There's not a better time to be even talking about this. You know, we're all kind of thrown in, you know, our familiar, like the automation has been messed with. So it's a really good time for everyone listening to think about purpose within your family, purpose with your primary. That that's It's really, really inspiring. I really appreciate you bringing this to us. And the fact that at any time, you know, this part of our automation is we think everyone, everyone, everything's permanent. We're mm-hmm. in a dream. Our partner could die today. And mm-hmm. Did we say what we wanted to say? Did we make that time with them precious? Were we fully present and attentive? Yes, it brings us right back to the immediacy and the, and the moment. So this is a good time for all of us, you know, therapists to really sort of use this fear as a way to get people to finally grow up. To have the guiding principles of secure functioning whether it be your organization or what have you, even if your bank account has dropped, you know, these different kinds of threats that when it's tied to what's the meaning and purpose, that's, that's the way through it for sure. So this is incredible. So can you let everybody know where to find you and what you would like to point them to? Thank you. We have the PACT Institute, the, the PACT P-A-C-T Institute. Which stands for Psychobiological... A psychobiological Approach to Couple Therapy 
which can actually be applied to individual therapy because you're Absolutely. a couple. And there you'll find training programs. We train all over the world right now through the internet, but we're training in person also when this passes. And also we do couple retreats throughout this country. Most of those have been tabled for the time being, but we'll probably do them online and we do them out of the country as well. Those are fabulous retreats that are really off of the, the second book, Wired for Love. The new book we do, which is from Sounds True, it's the latest and greatest I think. And there are two more books coming out as I grow. And I'm moving much more towards this idea of the big idea and then the little ideas that hang on it. How do you work together? How do you deal with conflict? How do you co-regulate? That's fantastic. I can't wait for it to come out. And for those of you that are considering training with Stan, I would really recommend it. I think he's a fantastic trainer. He has a lot of new things. He keeps people up to date. He's challenging. It's a little different. And those that have been trained by him, you know, you kind of stand out in the community because you work a little differently. And that can help you with referrals. It can help you with the, you know, peer respect and things like that. So you're saying the we do would be if if people haven't aren't familiar with you to go to we do. I think we do is good. It's a good primer on all the things about getting married or committed in a relationship, including vetting, including scanning for deal breakers and not letting them go. There's a lot in it, including also child rearing. Oh, and there's another book I'm working with a, a former student of mine called Baby Bomb, working with the couple, the first, uh, with the first baby, keeping oh, them a couple, focused fantastic. on the couple. Fantastic. Oh, that is really great. That is really great. And one of your books that I recommend a lot is Your Brain on Love. People find it so accessible. And I get, you know, even if I'm working with the individual, I'll get them to bring it to their partner and, you know, do it together. And it's just fantastic. It really speeds up the therapy, really, you know, really done so much for the, for everybody. And, uh, yeah, just have a lot of respect. Thank uh, you, as I do for you. You've done some great work in bringing yeah. people together and educating yeah. people. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And I really love that we are have a format, have a mic to be able to get this out to the world for people who, outside of the echo chamber, who can be introduced to this for the first time. So that's really cool. Okay, well, let's stay in touch. And thank you so much for coming on. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.